We're picking back up in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And um, we considered last week, just in that opening section, our calling to God is those who have been chosen in him before the foundation of the world and those who have been predestined for the adoption as sons or as the legal heirs of, of God. And that's what we sang about in that opening song of Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. I don't know if you caught on to that language, but it's the language of the Christ who gave up himself so that we would be adopted as, as sons, is the heirs of God. Well, as we continue in this section, we left off in verse six and we were just recognized that our response in all of this is that we ought to be to the praise of God's glorious grace. And in Ephesians 1, 6, in that second half of the verse, Paul writes that God lavished this grace on us in the beloved one. We, we have God's grace, not just given to us, but lavished on us, greatly poured out on us in the beloved one, Jesus Christ. And, and we have to just recognize that apart from our connection to Christ, we, we don't get that grace. We sometimes talk in theological terms of this common grace that's common to all mankind. Well, there's this special, rich pouring out of grace that we receive by virtue of Jesus Christ. And as we continue to look at Ephesians chapter 1, you, you can probably see in verse 1 and verse 7 and verse 13, this repeated phrase of, in him we have. In, in this that him, that refers to the beloved one. Jesus. And here I think Paul is just drawing on the language that, that the apostles record that came directly from heaven at Jesus' baptism when God said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And so this beloved one is the one who brings us into the adoption. So the beloved son makes us beloved sons as heirs. But then that that connection to the beloved one goes forward. And in verse seven, we're told that in this beloved one, in Jesus, we have redemption. Then in verse 11, we have received an inheritance. And then in verse 13, in him, we, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We received the Holy Spirit. Well, we are this morning going to just consider what it means for us to have redemption in him. And in the coming weeks, we'll consider this idea of the inheritance that we have in Christ. And then finally, of, of the way that we receive this, the Holy Spirit because of Christ. But we're going to talk this morning about the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. In other places in the New Testament, Paul talks about redemption as well in kind of slightly different ways. So in 1 Corinthians 1, he says that Christ himself is our redemption. And that should help us understand that we have no redemption apart from our connection to Jesus because he is our redemption. But it also in other places, Paul talks about a future redemption that we have, the, the redemption of our bodies. And there's this idea that our redemption has two aspects to it, a present redemption that we have, and that's what Paul's emphasizing here in Ephesians. But then in other places like Romans 8, he talks about the redemption we have, our adoption, which is the redemption of our bodies. And he points us forward to realize that there's a final redemption yet to come. And, and that's the resurrection. 
And, and so we want to revel and marvel in this hope, in this redemption we currently have. But we also say there's a day coming when this is going to be fully recognized. So as you experience sin, and this is the objection that I want to address, you, you might object and say, I know Paul says I have redemption, but what about the fact that I sinned over and over again this week? What, what about the fact that I have a major physical ailment that keeps coming back? What, what about the fact that, that there are people in my life who are experiencing awful abuse of all kinds? Well, the answer isn't that we don't have redemption. The, the answer is that we have a foretaste of the redemption. We have it truly, but it will come fully when Christ returns in glory and when his kingdom will be here without end. And, and so as you feel that tension, the, the already not yet of our redemption, know that there's a not yet that is to come, but that in no way minimizes the redemption that we currently have in Christ. So, so I want us to think about the redemption we have now as a way of orienting us to put our, our hope in the redemption that we'll receive in the future. Now, there, there is an important parallel text that we need to consider. So sometimes when Paul writes in his letters, he'll say one thing in one way in one letter, and then he'll say it just slightly differently in another letter that's very similar. And so we try to look at both of them to help us understand what Paul is getting at. And the, the parallel to the text that we'll talk about here is Colossians 1.14. So in Ephesians 1, 7, Paul writes that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. But then in Colossians 1, 14, Paul says this in a shorter way, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So I'm going to try to compare these two lines of thinking a little bit to try to bring more color to both of them. As you look at these two lines, there are some differences and some similarities. And the first difference is that in the Ephesians text, Paul says that we have forgive, forgiveness of our trespasses. And then in Colossians 1.14, he says we have the forgiveness of sins. Okay, so these are essentially synonyms. Okay, I think trespasses emphasizes a little bit more a violation of a standard that's clearly articulated and set up. And then sin, you know, is probably referring to a more general category of an offense against God. And even the way our language works, when you think about trespassing, you're probably thinking about that fence that has a sign, no trespassing, and, and you step on the other side of that fence and now you're trespassing. Where, you know, wrongdoing is just more general. Well, I think that's what's going on with trespassing here in Ephesians 1.7 and sins in Colossians 1.14. But we shouldn't make too much of a distinction between these because even in Ephesians 2, Paul says that at one time you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And he uses them in a very synonymous way. So as we consider these two separate texts, I, th I think the main point that is there that we should grab is there's forgiveness of sins, generally speaking, okay? There, there is, however, a difference between these two texts that's in many of our English translations, uh, but is not in the Greek text. And I, I'm going to call your attention to this. And it, it might be a little bit complicated, but I think it will be helpful to so track with me. And I'll speak in terms of different English translations that you, you can reference. 
in both the Christian Standard Bible, which is what I'm using here, and the English Standard Version, which many have used and, and do use, there, there's a phrase in the Ephesians 1, 7 text that says, we have the forgiveness of our trespasses. And, but in the New International Version, in the NIV, and in the King James Version, it just says that we have the redemption of trespasses. And, and then, interestingly, in all four of those translations, when you look at Colossians 1.14, it just says, we have the forgiveness of sins. Well, the, the interesting thing is that there is no possessive pronoun in, in our Greek New Testament in Ephesians 1.7, nor is there in Colossians 1.14. So I'm somewhat baffled why we have it translated in ESV and CSB as forgiveness of our trespasses in one place, and then there's the exact same wording in, in another, and it's just forgiveness of sins. Okay, so my, my point here is that with that added personal pronoun, I think that we can start to latch onto a certain idea of forgiveness that is correct in other texts of Scripture, but not in this one. Okay, so we, we need to, this is the technical part here a little bit. When we start talking about forgiveness, there are really two main ideas that forgiveness can carry with it. The first is the idea of reconciliation. This use of forgiveness is primarily a relational use of the term forgiveness to where we commit a wrong against somebody else. We ask them to forgive us of that wrong. And what we're asking them to do is to overlook it, to set it aside and to receive us again as if we hadn't committed that wrong or better yet, having come through that wrong and, and now being in a place of mercy and reconciliation. So generally, if you're telling your kids, um, hey, you need to ask your brother to forgive you, you're, you're asking them, you're telling them to say, hey, will you please, can, can we reconcile in our relationship? Can we be friends again? So, so one use of forgiveness is this friendship reconciliation sort of use of the word. And this is generally in a highly relational context. The second use of forgiveness carries with it instead the idea of release or pardon. And in this idea or this use of forgiveness is more in legal or financial terms. And so sometimes we'll talk about forgiveness in the terms of a debt that is owed. And, and the debt might not be paid by someone, but they're asking forgiveness for their loan. So, you know, if you have student loans or something, you might apply for student loan forgiveness. Well, there's not really that same idea of reconciling and becoming friends with, with the company that gave you the loan, but there is the idea of release from the debt that's owed and therefore release from the power of the one standing behind that debt. Okay, so if you owe a loan to somebody, so I think some people are buying homes in, in this assembly. Well, when you sign that mortgage document, you, you owe a, a debt now in that you'll spend the next 20 or 30 years paying off. Now, if somehow uh, that, that, that loan was forgiven, not only do you not have to pay that back, but that creditor doesn't have authority over you anymore. You're not indebted to them. Uh, this is the language uh, in the Proverbs or talks about if you go into debt, but that guy becomes your master. So when we talk about forgiveness in this sense, it's release from something owed. But beyond that, it's release from the power connected to the thing that's owed. I, I hope that this is making sense. In many texts in the New Testament, 
forgiveness is talked about in this reconciliation way. And that's what will show up later in Ephesians 4 when Paul says, you need to forgive one another even as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. Well, that's leaning into the reconciliation definition of forgiveness. This text, I think, is leaning into the release version of forgiveness. Now, that get, that's harder to see when we say that we have forgiveness of our trespasses because it, it's almost like, well, I, I did something against God and now I'm reconciling with him. Well, that's true, but, but it's just forgiveness of trespasses. And that is to say, I think Paul is trying to point out that your trespasses and my trespasses are a debt that we owe and it carries with it a certain power over us. There's a captivity of sin that we need to be released from. There's a captivity of transgressions that we need release from because they hold us captive. Our, our sin holds us captive, right? And, and there, there is a sense in which by virtue of our sin, we owe God a debt and that sin breaks our relationship with God and we need to be reconciled with him. Well, that, that truth is talked about in other places. Here, the idea is that those trespasses have a power that holds on to you, that keeps you captive, and you need redemption from that, and you need release from those transgressions. So as we look at this text then, I, I think that Paul is drawing on Old Testament imagery about redemption and release from captivity that ought to inform the way we understand everything that's going on in Ephesians 1, 7 through 10, or 7, yeah, 7 through 10. Okay, so, so as we get into this, um, there, there is historical background here throughout the entire world where people are sold into slavery and they can be redeemed out of slavery as money is paid to the, the slave owner and, and now they're released. And in other places, that imagery is used, but that's not the imagery that's being used here. Because as we get later into the text, there is no indication that a debt is paid in full to someone, to, to a slaveholder, that, that now the slaveholder is satisfied and were released. Instead, it's talked about in terms of the Exodus imagery where God redeemed a people without paying Pharaoh a dime, but exercised his great outstretched arm against him with, with many plagues, okay? Or plagues, I think is how you say that. So, so it's not a payment to satisfy a debt, but it's actually an exacting of a payment from the one who holds God's people in captivity. So what, what I am going to do here is walk through several images from the Exodus and then connect it to this imagery of our Exodus from transgression as well. So if you need to visualize this, you know how sometimes you'll watch a film and something happens and then like it cuts a quick scene and it's a change of color and this person is experiencing that same thing in a different phase of life. So, you know, whether it's like this really emotional part of a scene where like, I don't know, someone smells like really delicious bread and it flashes back to their childhood where, you know, they, they were a street urchin and someone tossed them a fresh loaf of bread and they smell it. And, and then the whole thing's more meaningful because it's connected earlier. Well, I'm, I'm going to try to do the reverse where I show that original scene, the orphan, like very like baby part of redemptive history. And then I want us to flash forward and understand our redemption in a more meaningful way because we've seen it earlier on in, in redemptive history. Okay. So if you would like, 
you could put one hand in Exodus and one hand in Ephesians and flip back and forth. Uh, You don't need to. I'll just try to articulate very clearly here. In the Exodus imagery, uh, so first of all, in the Exodus imagery, God provides for Israel's redemption and release based on a covenant that he made with Abraham. So in Exodus 6, 5, God is hearing the cries of the people, right? Even earlier in Exodus 1, and God remembers the oath that he swore to Abraham and he decides to act. And and then later in Deuteronomy, Moses describes God's love and commitment to keep his promises to Abraham in this way. The Lord has set his heart on you, Israel, and chosen you, not because you were more numerous than all people, for you are the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your fathers. For he brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from a place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So in this Exodus imagery, there's no debt that's paid to this Pharaoh. Instead, there's a promise that's kept by God to Abraham and therefore to his people that would result in God stretching out his arm and doing great and mighty deeds to secure the redemption of Israel, the release from their slavery to the Egyptians. So so that's the old covenant Exodus imagery. Well, in the Ephesians language, as we discussed last week, God provides for the redemption and release of his new people, the church, based on God's own gracious choice. And, and later God will point, or Paul will point out that we've received the promised Holy Spirit, this one that's promised in connection with the new covenant. So whereas the Exodus was based on God's covenant with Abraham, our new Exodus and our redemption now certainly ties into that, but is more fundamentally connected to this new covenant promise that God makes to his people. So in this way, our redemption and release is rooted in the covenantal nature of God, in the gracious choosing of God, similar to Israel's own redemption and release that was based in those very features of God's character. So, so our redemption as we experience is not that different from Israel's. The main difference, as is, is we'll see all along the way, is that that was the, the nascent, if we want to use that form. And that's a baby version of it. That's the seed form. And, and then it flowers fully in the new covenant. Okay, so, so we look backwards, not because that's more real and tangible and powerful, but because that's the seed form of what we experience in the new covenant redemption that we have in Jesus, in, in God's choosing of us as his people. Second, in the Exodus imagery, Israel was redeemed after a long period of time between the making of the Abrahamic covenant and the actual Exodus event. So all the way back when God was talking to Abram in Genesis 15, 13, God told Abraham, I will make a great nation of you. I will bring you to the promised land, but be sure of this. Your descendants will be in captivity for 400 years. They'll they'll be in slavery for a long time before they taste of this promise. And when we read that, try try reading that from the vantage point of someone who's in captivity in Egypt. Wouldn't wouldn't you say, God, what is wrong with your timing here? Why why wouldn't you bring us out of Egypt before Joseph died? Why, Why wouldn't you bring us out of Egypt before this other Pharaoh who didn't know what you did is in place? And, and you could start to question, 
either during captivity as, as an Israelite or while you're in the wilderness or even when you get into the promised land, why didn't God act sooner? Does, does God know what he's doing? Is he acting in the right time with wisdom and understanding? Well, when we think of our own salvation and of Jesus' coming, we might ask that exact same question. And in fact, I, I used to work in group homes and I'd work this overnight shift where we'd be there all night with, and a, I'd have a coworker and we would just talk about things all the time because there wasn't anything else to do. And she one night asked me, why in the world, if, if the Bible is true, why would Jesus have come then and not now when you have a television screen that could just, you know, blast Jesus's message across the planet in like a second? Well, we ask questions like this and we don't know. And, and maybe there are answers that we want to know and I, or want to accept. But I think this is what Paul is getting at in the Ephesians text when he talks about the redemption that we have. He, he describes it in this way in verse 8. This redemption based in the riches of God's grace, was richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time. We might not think it was the right time. We might not understand why it was the right time. And, and I think that this is another parallel to the Exodus imagery. People were crying out, God, where are you? Why, why haven't you acted? Why haven't you kept your promises? And though in either situation, we might not understand God's timing. It's the right time. And it's according to his wisdom and his understanding. So in both the Exodus imagery and the Ephesians text, we come to find out that God acts to redeem his people always at the exact right time. Third, in the Exodus imagery, the redemption and release was from the slavery forced on the Israelites by the Egyptians. They, they were redeemed, that is set free, right? They were released from their captivity, from that bondage by the outstretched arm of God and by his great acts of judgment. So prior to these great acts of judgment, God instructed Moses to command Pharaoh to let the people go using these words and listen to them. And, and you'll hear, I think, the reverberations in the Ephesians text. You will say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go. Look, I am about to kill your firstborn son. This, this language of sonship related to adoption, this, this language of calling a people out, of choosing them to be released for the purpose of worship is mirrored in the, the Ephesians text. But we need to note here that this redemption on, for God's people, Israel, was also an act of judgment that was carried out on the Egyptians. This is where there is helpful language of salvation that comes through judgment. We see this in the Exodus imagery, and, and this is the language that gets picked up in the Ephesians text as well. This redemption release from our transgressions mirrors the Exodus imagery in, in, the, in the way that our sin is Pharaoh and Egypt. 
our sin is what we're captive to. And as we read the rest of Ephesians and really the whole of the New Testament, there is judgment that's poured out on sin and salvation comes through judgment. But as we look at this idea of what it means to have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses, we need to view our sin as a cruel slave master. That's the imagery that we're given. And we, we need to avoid then thinking that our redemption is somehow lesser than Israel's redemption from Egypt just be, because it's from sin and not from Pharaoh and slavery. There, there's a way that the Bible works and there are images and events in the Old Testament that are real and that happen, but then they're reiterated in the New Testament in a heightened way. That, that's how typology works. That's the way that w- the word we use for this. And it's always heightened. And I think Paul is trying to tell us that your captivity to sin is more sincere and real than the Egyptians' captivity to Pharaoh. That, that doesn't minimize their captivity, but it helps us understand our captivity to sin more rightly. This is a serious, dangerous, life-changing thing. So as we look at the images brought out, we understand that just as Israel was called out of Egypt to worship him, to be a people for his name, you and I are called out of our bondage to sin to be a people for God's name. So Paul in Titus 2, 11 through 14 talks about it this way. And, and this is language that mirrors the Exodus language. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse us for himself as a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. And here's where the parallels are very clear. Israel redeemed from captivity to Egypt to be a people for his own possession. You and I redeemed from lawlessness to be a people for his own possession. Fourth, In the Exodus imagery, the redemption slash release of Israel was finally secured after the death of the firstborn sons of the Egyptians. So it's important to remember here that the Israelites were required to put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their house so that the destroyer would be barred from coming into the home to kill the firstborn son. I think one of the most interesting and important details of this text, and we refer to this event as the original Passover, that the Passover meal goes on to commemorate. in, In the original text, the Lord says that he himself would pass through the land and strike every firstborn. That's Exodus 12, 12. And it gives us this idea that if the Israelites had not responded to God's word by faith and acted to put the blood on the doorpost, that they would have been in jeopardy as well. So so not only would both Egyptian and Israelite be in jeopardy, it seems here, but also that it's the Lord himself who would bring the destruction. So so sometimes the text is translated in terms of the angel who would come or the destroyer. That is to be understood as God himself. 
But as people respond to the word of the Lord and, and put the blood on the doorpost in faith, the Lord goes on to promise that he would pass over them. But, but then as he gets into the instructions even more, it, it gets a little bit muddled because he goes on to say that, that when I see the blood on the doorpost, I will guard the door so that the destroyer will pass by you. And the imagery is given here to suggest that in that act, the Lord is both the destroyer and the defender. And, and it's the presence of the blood that distinguishes between those who should be destroyed and those who should be defended. But in both cases, it's the Lord who's acting. And, and so the imagery is that the Lord would see the blood on the doorpost and he would bar the door so that the destroyer could not come in and kill the firstborn son. In that way, it would be right for us to say that the Israelites had redemption through the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. They had redemption through the blood, the release from transgressions. In the Ephesians text, Christians too are described as having redemption through the blood of Christ. Verse 7, that's, the, that's what's plugged in the middle here. And this is what distinguishes this text from the Colossians text. In him, that's in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness or the release of transgressions. So Paul is drawing on that Passover-like imagery. And he connects the blood of Jesus to the redemption and release that Christians have in him. So where in Egypt, the Lord functioned both as defender and destroyer, and in the distinguishing factor was the blood, in the, Ephes in the Ephesians account, Jesus is described as the one who is now our defender. He is the one who gives the blood that marks us off so that we will not be destroyed by God's wrath, but instead sin will be destroyed by God's wrath and we will be released from its captivity to go on in freedom. So in that imagery, if you can see it in your mind's eye, there's blood on the doorposts trickling down that separate the Israelites from this destructive power of God. Well, the New Testament imagery is that there's a different post, the cross with blood that's trickling down that protects us from the destroying wrath of God. And in fact, Jesus bears that wrath himself. He shed his blood as the lamb so that we would have redemption from sin and so that we would be adopted as sons. This, this is the exact parallel, but in a heightened way. It's not just the Israelites who are being brought out as God's son. We all are being brought out as God's son. Furthermore, where the blood on the doorpost in the Exodus created a dividing distinction between Jew and Egyptian, and, and forevermore a dividing distinction between Jew and Gentile, the blood of Jesus on the cross tears down every wall of hostility, bringing Jew and Gentile together into one new humanity. So in the Exodus, there, there's a broken humanity of Egypt and Israel. Well, God's God freed them from that and created two distinct humanities, a new humanity, Israel, who would be God's firstborn son. Well, in Jesus, Paul says in Ephesians 2.13, this, this is where Paul is going with this. And, and this is a danger of just looking at one small text by itself. We forget Paul 
builds on these ideas. Well, here's how Paul builds on that idea in Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So unlike the Egyptians and Israelites who were separated by the blood of the lamb, now everyone's brought together by the blood of the lamb. For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. So on this redemptive historical level, the blood of the lamb Jesus did what the blood of the Passover lamb in Egypt could not do. And that is to bring together all people as a new humanity, a new Adam following in the truest Adam, Jesus Christ. So when we understand our redemption in this way, how, how should we respond to that? Well, I have a few points of response for you. First, I, I just would say that you need the blood of Jesus for your redemption. Your redemption is not possible without Jesus. And, and so we could say, in a manner of speaking, you need the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost of your life. Apart from Christ, you are a slave to sin. You're captive to its power. You're forced to fight in its army and labor in its city, building up its power against God. And when God's wrath comes, it's poured out against the entire city of man. In in and you're a captive to that apart from Jesus. So you need Jesus to mark you off as one who is to be defended from God's wrath rather than destroyed by it. So if, if you do not look to Jesus as the one who sets you free, say, talk to us about that. We want to talk to you about Jesus. We love talking about Jesus. And, and we believe that he is the one who sets us free from the captivity of our sin. And it's a redemption that we have now. And, and we know that we're not perfect in this life and, and sin keeps grabbing onto us, but we truly have redemption now. So turn to Jesus. Second, for those who have looked to Jesus, responded to him by faith and appealed to his blood as the redeeming sacrifice, I, I think that you and I regularly need to look back to the Exodus. We, we need things like Jesus' storybook Bibles and um, things like the Lord's Supper and all of these other things to draw us into the imagery of the Exodus event. This is the foundational event that goes on to describe everything else that happens in the Bible. This is what God's commands are based on, right? Do this because at one time you were in bondage and now you're free. And, and now we have the commands of Christ. Do this because you've been set free in Christ, right? So, so don't think, uh, parents especially, that reading your child's children's Bible to them with all of the pictures is a waste of your time. You need that imagery too. I need that imagery. And so dive into that. But more importantly, Jesus gave the Israelites, well, God gave the Israelites, I guess we could also say Jesus gave the Israelites this, but God gave the Israelites the imagery of the Passover to participate in, to draw them back into that story so that they would act out the drama of their redemption. 
Well, Jesus took that and moved it from a once a year event, that's a really big thing, to an every week event in a more packaged way, and it's called the Lord's Supper. And in the Lord's Supper, we act out the drama of our redemption as we appeal to the blood of Christ is what gives us the redemption from our sins. So when you participate in the Lord's Supper, look at that as a calling to remind you that you have redemption through the blood of Christ. There's also another important reason we need to always look back to this Exodus imagery. And and that's because we are so like Israel when we have received redemption, we, we turn back to our captor. We, we think it was better when we were enslaved. So Brian read from Hosea about Exodus, who even as they were being called out of Egypt, were calling back to Egypt. It's, isn't that the imagery of our own lives? Isn't that what you and I experience every week? Even as we are set free from sin, we're calling out to the sin that calls out to us and we say, that is good. That it was better for us to be in sin and have the pleasures of this life than to be taking up the cruciform pattern of Christ. And and while it's very easy for us to look at Israel and say, you are so blind. We, we need to look at ourselves and say, we are so blind. Every time we feel that, that inclination to go back to the captivity of sin. It helps us then to think about Israel post-redemption. They, they've been redeemed from Egypt. They're called to go into the promised land, which will function as a new garden of Eden, where they will expand the boundaries of that garden to reach the whole world, where, where they will have God's presence dwelling with them. But for the majority of the Old Testament, they're stuck in the wilderness. They're wandering around. And, and that's where you and I are. They, the Israelites had redemption, but, but there was a finality to their redemption that was yet to come. Well, you and I have redemption, but there's a finality of our redemption that's yet to come in the new creation, in the redemption of our bodies, in the resurrection. That points us, and, and that's where Paul's going, okay? So I just want to pause and say that very often we rightly dwell on our redemption, our forgiveness of sin, and we stop there and think that's all that, that we have. I've, I've been forgiven. And, and that's right. But because we're thinking primarily in terms of reconciliation, relational forgiveness, we, we say, I'm right with God now that I've been forgiven. And this is all that there is to my Christian hope. But Paul is talking about release from the captivity of sin. And, and he, I think, is telling us, you, you feel the, the calling of sin. And and in fact, even though you have all of the spiritual blessings in Christ in the heavenly places, that's his language in Ephesians 1, he's going to go on to Ephesians 6 and say that there are evil cosmic powers in the heavenly places that we fight against. So, So we know that we're made right with God. We have redemption, but it's not over yet. And so Paul gives us a vision of the glorious future to press onto when we forget that it's there. So when we, like Israel, forget that there's a promised land waiting for us with milk and honey and all good things and God's presence forevermore, when we forget that, Paul gives us these words is the climactic height of our redemption. 
in verse 10, to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. That's where our redemption is headed. It's not just about getting out of Egypt. It's about going somewhere. And, and there is going to be a decisive work of Christ at his return where his kingdom is established fully and finally forever, where everything on heaven and on earth are united in him. And this is a way of talking about the new creation that we long for, that we sing about. And as we look towards that day, we just recognize that we get a piece of it right now because we have redemption. And and what that should motivate us to do is to look forward to the day when all things are united in Christ and to act as an agent of Jesus, as one of the people in this royal priesthood who, who declare wherever they go, Jesus is king. And then who act wherever they go in a way to make the broken things, the Egypt-like things, more new creation-like things, declaring what is to come. So, so wherever your feet take you this week, whatever responsibilities are before you, as one who has redemption and who declares a day when all will be made right, you take broken things and you touch them and you make them new. Where, where you see people who are hurting, you act to bring healing. Where, where you see poverty, you act to bring flourishing. Where you see rebellion in your children, you raise them up to bring respect for the Lord. Where you see abuse, you work to bring rest. Where you see anything that's gone wrong, marked by the old creation, Because of this redemption you have in Christ, you're now an agent of Jesus to declare this final day when all will be made right, when all is united in him. Let's pray that God uses each of us to do that and uses this church to do that in prayer.